Welcome to Sedaris. Uh, my name is Ben. I lead one of the Consider cohorts here. Uh, and today I was invited by Dave and Ryan to come up and teach, give them a, a little bit of a break in their busy schedules, and really continuing in the series as we've been going through the last few weeks in the book of Colossians. And so as we are getting started today, um, we're going to be spending our time in Colossians 2. So you can grab your Bibles there, and if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We have some for you. They're at the end of the rows there. You can ask someone to pass them down. Um, the book of Colossians is towards the end of the Bible there. If you don't know where it's at, there's no shame in using the table of contents. There's no shame in using a phone to look up the passage as well, too. Specifically, we're going to spend most of our time in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. But before we jump into things, I want to start by praying, inviting the Holy Spirit to open our, our hearts to hear from the word of God. So go ahead and bow your heads. Father, we thank you for Sundays. We thank you for the ability in our lives to pause and stop and hear from you. Father, we invite your spirit today to start to work in our hearts so that we can be receptive to what you want us to know and what you want us to learn. Lord, I pray for myself as well, too, that you allow me to speak clearly, allow me to speak truth, and really protect the space from those spirits that want us to not hear from you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So as we're getting started today, the first thing I want you to be thinking about I have a question for you, and I want you to be really considering this honestly. And the question is this, how is your walk with Christ? Again, how is your walk with Christ? It's a pretty simple question, and I'm guessing that the people here, we've got a pretty wide spectrum of how people might answer that question. I'm guessing there's people here who might be saying, I don't really have one. I'm not really sure I buy into this. I don't really know what this all is all about or who this Jesus guy is. And if that's you, welcome. We're so glad you're here taking the time to, to pause and actually consider this. There's others of you who might be on the opposite end of the spectrum who are like, I am on fire for this. I want nothing else. I would give up everything just to be closer and closer to the God who loves me. I'm guessing, though, for most of us, our answer to this question falls somewhere in the middle. That some of us might be sitting there going, it's okay, there's some ups and downs. I like to say I love Jesus, but sometimes there's other priorities. Others of you also might be honestly saying, it's not great. It doesn't really influence my life, or I'm mad at God. These are all answers that I'm guessing people are thinking about. And the reason I wanted to start with that question was I wanted you to get to a place of self-awareness. Because the passage we're looking at today actually really tries to address 
this question. How is our walk with Christ? So let's start by reading the passage first, and then we'll go from there. So in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, we read, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It's a pretty short passage. It seems pretty clear that the author of this, Paul, is saying, so walk in Christ. But we're going to take some time and we're going to break it down a little bit. Because I don't believe that if we just say, keep walking, grin and bear it, do your best, we are doing justice to what Paul is really trying to say here. And my hope is when, when we dive into this text a little bit further, my hope is at the end of all this, you are able to walk away actually feeling closer to a God who so desperately loves you and invites you to walk with him. And at the end of this, what I want you to be able to see is how these words right there are actually a beautiful portrait of the gospel message that we proclaim. So I invite you to take some time to consider this with me because we're going to get there. But in order to do that, I first feel like we need to zoom out a little bit. Part of our roles when we get up here, whether it's Dave or Ryan or any other people they invite to come up here, is not just to tell you what to think or what to believe, but we want to help prepare you to know how to hear from God and know how to read your Bibles well so that when you are reading Scripture or when you're doing your own study, you can go, I know what God is trying to say. And so in order to do that, we need to look a little bit beyond just this passage and start by knowing a little bit about kind of why this passage is even here and why this letter was even written. And so for some of you who have been following along in this series, this is going to be a little bit of a review. For those of you who, hey, maybe you've been in and out for a while there or have forgotten some of the things that we've been discussing there, we're going to get you caught up to speed. Or maybe it's your first time here. Great. Welcome to there. So first off, let's start by kind of understanding why the book of Colossians is here. You see, the book of Colossians is actually a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And if you're unfamiliar with who the Apostle Paul is, he was one of the earliest leaders of the church. And what he did is, basically, when he became a follower of Jesus, he started to go on mission out of Israel and into the rest of the Mediterranean and into Asia Minor. And he started raising up churches and planting churches all across the region, as well as raising up other leaders to go and plant churches there. And as he continued in his ministry, the letters that we read, the books that we read from Paul in the New Testament of our Bible, are basically him writing back to these churches to encourage them, to instruct them, to teach them, to remind them of truth. And he usually had a reason behind why he was writing each letter to these individual churches there. And for us to understand really what's happening in our passage in Colossians 2, 6, and 7, it's important for us to understand 
why Paul was writing to Colossians, the Colossians in the first place. And it's pretty simple. The Colossian church was an experiencing a controversy that as these young Christians were starting to grow and figure out what does this mean, what does it mean to follow Christ, what is this truth, they started also experiencing different teachings coming in and out of the church. And they're wondering, like, what is it that we're supposed to believe? And so word gets back to Paul, hearing some of this controversy that the, that the church is experiencing. And so he decides, I've got to do something for them so that they can understand how to respond to these false teachings that they are experiencing and that they're hearing there. And that's how we get to this letter. And so a lot of the first chapter in Colossians is Paul kind of introduces himself. He talks a little bit about why he's writing to them. He spends a lot of time talking about the accomplishments that Jesus has already done. And here in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we start to see a little bit of a transition. And he's inviting the Colossians to know how to respond to what is being taught, to what is being heard, what they, are, they have heard, so that they know how to continue moving forward. And this is what he instructs them. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus in the Lord, so walk in him. That is the command that Paul instructs the Colossians to. It's pretty simple on the surface level. But again, when we actually look at the context behind this, what we are going to see is there's something really beautiful happening in just that verse alone. So I want to start by really talking about the implications of Paul's instruction. The main point for him is to say, walk in Christ. But in order for us to know how we are to do that, he actually invites the Colossians to start before that. And what does he say? He invites them to walk in Christ as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. There's this comparison between the two actions. And what he's calling the Colossians back to do is to look back at the moments that they received Christ and allow that to shape how they are to move forward, how they are to live their lives, how they are to respond to the teachings that they're hearing. So as readers, what we need to be asking ourselves, what really are the implications of how they received Christ? What did they receive when that happened? For us to be able to move forward, Paul is inviting us to look back. He's telling them to really look at the foundations of what they've been taught. You see, he's inviting them to recognize what the gospel message was. That they have received this gift that there was a moment in time where they came to hear the message that there was a God who loved them deeply and who saw that there was a brokenness in their lives and decided to not stand back and let the consequences of that brokenness just play out over and over again, 
But instead, he stepped into this world to live lives as we do, to die as we do, so that ultimately we can have life. This is the foundational message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christians everywhere. And what Paul is saying to the Colossians and to us readers is that we need to come back to that over and over again. I think far too often we we consider the gospel as this one-time thing that we look back and we think of, of, well, there was this moment where I said, yes to Jesus, I get the benefits of that, and we continue to live our lives how we are to live, however that is. But here's the thing. When we read this, what Paul is instructing to us is a reminder that the gospel wasn't a one-time, momentary thing in your life, but rather it was a one-time and forever thing. That every day, every moment of our lives is meant to be saturated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. A message that you are so deeply loved that the God of the universe stepped into your world and died on your behalf so that you can have a life. We must always start there as the foundation for however we are to live. And what Paul is doing is saying, let's get back to square one. That's the important thing. When walking in Christ, we are supposed to get back to square one and stay there. We don't leave that. He invites us to sit there and allow the fruits to come from there. It's such an important thing, and I feel too often we try to go on to other things in our lives that we leave that behind. There's some other implications about Paul's message when he invites them to say, as you have received Christ Jesus. The word received is really important for us to remember. That we are not the initiators of this. That Paul, in the, the face of the false teachings of the Colossians, he's, he's inviting them to remember that the thing that you're supposed to set as your foundation, the lens that you're supposed to view everything else, is not something you created. It's not something you initiated. It's not something you developed. But it was something that you received. One, it's a gift to be cherished. But that is also a humbling thing. It's a reminder to us that when we look at the world around us and the teachings and the voices that we come across, that we already have a lens to view those things through. 
I feel that runs contrary to a lot of our modern way of thinking, where a lot of it is about finding your own truth, doing what's right for you. And what Paul is saying, if that's the mindset you're going to move forward with, you are going to miss out on so much. That where you're going to find fullness, where you're going to find life, is actually by coming back to the foundation of the gospel and letting that shape everything else. Again, the gospel wasn't a one-time thing. It is a forever thing. It means so much more than just you've been saved from your sins and have eternal life. But instead, it becomes the manner and the way we are to live our lives. How do we respond to that? How does that shape our actions and our interactions? That's a very personal question. I can't tell you what that actually means for you. What I would invite you to consider and think about that question is how does the gospel it, how does the gospel influence the way I live my day-to-day life? How does it influence my relationships? How does it influence my vocation? How does it influence my purpose? Take the time to think about that. What this requires us, though, is to actually remember how we also receive this message. In another passage, in Ephesians 2, 8, Paul is writing to another church, and he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing, but it's the work of God. For us to be able to do this, it requires a whole lot of faith. It requires us to remember that we won't always have the answer to everything. We won't always know the why behind the way the world is working. Why some of these things that we read seem contrary to ourselves. But what Paul is trying to say is, trust in the God who has given up everything for you. And have faith in that. So that you can have faith that everything from now is going to be great. I often think of the story of the Old Testament. That for thousands of years we have this promise that God is going to save the people of Israel. And yet you have these books upon books that span centuries, that span millennia of them still waiting. And if you read those books, you're wondering like, what's going on in all of these You have war, you have famine, you have a lot of death, you have a lot of sin. And yet somehow, God leads that story to a point that redeems all of mankind, that we see come to fruition 
in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. When we read the Old Testament, we can start to actually see that even in the midst of the the turmoil, the question marks, the doubts, God was still working and invited people to have faith in him. And that faith was realized. And so when we think about the gospel and the foundations of the things that we have taught and what we have received beforehand in the person of Jesus, that can allow us to still have faith in the uncertainties and the questions and the concerns and the doubts we have today. Because we have already seen a God who has fulfilled his promises of past. And we can have faith and trust in a God will fulfill his promises still yet to come. These are the things that that Paul is trying to remind the Colossians of as they are facing these false teachings there. Is don't lose the foundations of your faith. Remember that you have received Christ and remember the implications of what that actually means. And I think one of the things that's most amazing about Paul's response to the controversies that are experiencing, that are happening in the Colossians church, is he never actually addresses them directly. If you read the book of Colossians, Paul's response isn't to call out the specifics of, well, this is what they're saying and that's wrong. And I actually think that's a good thing for us. Because what that means is that this message is a timeless message. We don't have something where you can go back, well, I know how to respond in this specific instance. So if that specific thing that was happening in Colossae happens again, we know how to respond to that specific issue. Instead, we have a timeless message for us to know how do we respond any controversy or false teaching of our day. That as readers today, we can look back and we can see this message and say, I need to lean on the foundations of the gospel of Jesus Christ and allow that to shape everything that I hear, everything that I experience there. And when I I was wrestling with that, I started to think about well, what does that actually look like for us today? Who are the false teachers that we actually wrestle with in our day and age? I'm guessing there's plenty. There's a lot of things that we hear. There's messages coming at us from basically everywhere. You can look at our political system, our politicians, our political pundits. They're all trying to influence the way you think, the way you vote. They're all calling each other liars. What about corporations and companies? You can't go like seconds without seeing some sort of advertisement trying to tell you your life will be better if you have this. Celebrities. Man, if we could just be like them, our lives would be so much better. 
Just wear the shoes that they wear. Drink the soda that they drink. We're confronted with messages constantly. And oftentimes those messages get a little bit closer to home. What about your friends or your family or your colleagues? How many of you dread going to Thanksgiving dinner because you're, you're worried about the conversations? How many of you have lost friends because they wonder and they question your beliefs? Or they call you foolish? Thinking, they think you are filled with hate and ignorance. Sometimes the teachings that we have to wrestle with are very close to home. Another one. Again, these are messages that we need to know. How do we view these things in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That also includes your pastors and me. Sorry, Dave and Ryan, I am not throwing you under the bus. But you as listeners have a responsibility to actually engage with what is being said up front and say, is this actually related to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I know that Dave and Ryan take their role seriously. If you read through the scriptures, what you're going to find is that those who are leaders of the body of Christ are actually held to a much higher standard and the consequences are dire for those who lead their flock astray. I know Dave and Ryan take that very seriously. And you should be engaging with what I say today with that same mindset and that same lens. And my hope is that anything that I say that might run contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Spirit takes that away from you today. And that falls on deaf ears. Again, Allow the gospel message to be the lens and the foundation that if you have received Christ, allow that to shape how you engage and interact with everything. I've got one more false teacher to think about. What about yourself? As I was preparing for this message, I was in the library a few days ago and I was kind of just reflecting on false teachers and I was getting ready to kind of move forward. I created this list of like, oh, here's some, some examples we can be thinking about and I was getting ready to move on and all of a sudden this weight fell upon me, metaphorically. <laughs> but there was just this heaviness as this, this strong conviction came and I realized how often am I the false teacher in my own life? give you a few examples of what this actually looks like. How often do we allow our own worldviews and beliefs and identities shape how we engage with God and engage the world around us? I think of uh, when I graduated from grad school. So for those of you who don't know a little bit about my background, I work in education. Um, and I started working for this company, and, and we're considered basically retention and graduation experts for universities. 
And so schools will come to us to help them work with the, their students and work with their faculty and their staff to really help make sure that students can graduate from their colleges. And so when I started at this company, I was at about halfway through my own graduate school. I was going to seminary. And so I was kind of actually living out exactly of what we were trying to instruct these schools to do as the example of what it meant to actually be a successful person who was working full-time, trying to figure out family life, and also go to school. And so when we got to my graduation, my, co my colleagues were super excited, so we went out, we celebrated, they took me out to lunch, and they asked me this question. So after these years of study, what do you feel like you learned? And I paused, and I thought, and I responded, I learned I didn't know as much as I thought I did. I went into grad school with pretty strong beliefs about who I thought God was, how he interacted with the church and his people. I realized I didn't know a lot. In fact, some of the things that I held dearly, I realized I was wrong on those issues. I was allowing my own worldview and perspective to shape how I interacted with people, how I interacted with God. In some ways, I was being a false teacher to myself. I mean, you just have to ask yourself, do you have the same political views you had 10 years ago? Will you have the same political views you have 10 years from now? Are you humble to know that you may not be right when you're teaching yourself. You may be wrong on some issues. I feel like sometimes I'm a false teacher about our futures. I mean, I'm probably not the only one who gets stressed when thinking about the news, politics, the world, international relations, Whatever it may be, there's probably something that when you think about, stresses you out. And I find when I dwell on these things, I end up often in a place of despair. And I forget about what the message of the gospel is, that God hasn't abandoned us. That's why I was so happy when we were going through the Minor Prophets series earlier this year. When we come across to the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk writes, Look around in the nations and behold... I'm doing a work you would not believe if you had heard. You see, God is still working. If we allow the message of the gospel and remember the foundations that we have received to Christ, we remember that God continues to work and that he has not abandoned us and that he is still engaged in working in this world today. What about our sin? How often do we try to rationalize our sin? It's not that bad. Not hurting anyone else. Well, that was an issue back then. Times have changed. That one's often my favorite. And we often forget... We love grace so much and we think of it as this timeless thing. 
but we don't think of sin as something that lingers as well. And it's a very dangerous game to approach your Bibles and say, I'm going to pick and choose what I want to believe about this. We don't want to be in a position where we are cutting the blue wire when we need to cut the red. Far too often we end up being a false teacher to ourselves, trying to rationalize our actions and not recognizing what sin actually is. How about our shame? And I'm not just speaking of the shame that we experience when we have that conviction of, I've done something wrong. We often forget about the shame of when sin has happened to us. There's people who have been victimized and they allow that weight to hold them down. And yet, the gospel is a reminder that we're not defined by our shame. In 1 John 1, 9, John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We often look at that and think of that verse as speaking just about the sins we commit. And that's where the forgiveness aspect comes. But we also forget the cleansing aspect. The cleansing is a healing term. It's an invitation not just to confess the sins you've committed, but to also confess the sins that have been committed against you. And the promise is that God will bring cleansing. That you no longer need to be identified by what's happened to you. Or what you've done. You have received Christ and you are a child of God. That's what matters above anything else. Lastly, our pain. Some of us have suffered. Some of us have experienced loss. Some of you may be suffering today. You're wondering, how could God be good? What does this mean? But if we actually look at the true teachings of the gospel, what we see is we see in multiple instances that Jesus suffered himself and Jesus recognized the pain and suffering of others. If you want a memory verse, John eleven thirty five 35 is a pretty easy one. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus recognized the pain of those who had experienced loss. That's occurring right after the death of his friend Lazarus. And he's going to the family and friends, and he weeps with them. God also experiences your pain. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is found in Exodus 2. In Exodus, we see the story of Israel as they've been enslaved in Egypt. And they're suffering and they're crying out. At the end of Exodus chapter 2, what we see is, is this response that God heard their cries. He saw their suffering and he knew. That word knew is a 
so, such an intimate word in the actual Hebrew that what is being said is actually God is suffering with them. God loves you so much that your suffering is his suffering. Far too often we are the false teachers. I don't want to leave you there. I don't. That's not good news. There's actually hope. And I promise you what we are going to see here is actually a portrait of the gospel. And that portrait is found in the next few words, so walk in him. That's not just a command. But if we truly want to understand how this relates to the gospel, we also need to understand the whole story. Again, I'm coming back encouraging you to understand the whole story of God because we're going to miss something. And part of that story starts in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is kind of an inciting incident for the rest of the narrative of Scripture because it's where we see the first sin. See, God has created the world. He's created the first two humans, Adam and Eve, and he's instructed to them, like, go and experience all I have given you. Except for there's one thing I ask. There's a tree that you're not to eat from. And he doesn't just say, it's because I don't want you to eat from it, but he actually knows If you eat from it, you'll die. This isn't an oppressive law or prohibition for them. It's actually something for their well-being and their goodness. And yet, what we see in that story is a new figure comes into play. And a serpent comes in. The serpent was Satan, who is the adversary of God, who wants to destroy all that God's created and create his own kingdom. And he steps in. And he comes to Adam and Eve, and he, he goes, you can eat from this. God just doesn't want you to be like him. Does he, is he, he's causing them to question, does God really have your best interest in mind? And they cave. And they eat. And immediately after they eat, we come across Genesis 3, chapter 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What we see here is the effects of their sin had brought them to a place of shame where they are no longer willing to walk with God. If we remember that as we read Colossians 2, we see something really beautiful. What Paul writes, so walk in him, is a reminder to his readers 
that the work of Christ has reversed the effects of the fall. That no longer we need to be in a place of shame. No longer do we need to hide from God. But instead, we have the opportunity to walk freely in the presence of Christ. And what we start to recognize is that Paul's command here is really actually an invitation. An invitation to walk in celebration of what Christ has done. That no longer do we need to stand in shame for whatever we've done. No longer do we need to be filled with shame when we are false teachers to ourselves. But instead, we get to walk with Christ. And Paul doubles down on this as he goes to close out the verses there. In verses 7, he says, Rooted and built up in him and established in faith, just as you were taught. Again, Paul has bookended this walking with Christ with a reminder, as you had received Christ in faith, to continue to live in faith, rooted on what the foundations of your beliefs are. Again, how would your life be different if you allowed that to be true? Paul also asks him to respond in thanksgiving. It's a reminder that we have a whole lot to be thankful for. That's something I struggle with personally. Um, It's hard to remember the things we have to be thankful for. But what Paul is encouraging us to do is again, in light of whatever we hear, however we live our lives, the way we walk in Christ We walk in him by celebrating and remembering all that he has done and allowing that to be the foundation of how we engage with everything around us. So my hope is today that you remember the depths of the love of God for you. That we now, if you are a follower of Christ, You have the ability not to hide in shame as Adam and Eve found, but you can walk in freedom and newness. And if you're not sure about that, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ, I would invite you to consider that as well. Is there something that is weighing you down? You can find freedom in a God who loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you've done. The way you've worked throughout history and the way you work today. The way that you plan to work in the future. 
allow us to live our lives in a way of celebration. Allow us to remember that we have freedom, that we need not be defined by our sin, need not be defined by our shame, that you don't allow those to define us, but instead you invite us to walk closely with you. Allow that to shape our lives. We ask this in your name.